Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. All right. Well, we are today featuring the interview with Dr. Ted Naiman. And he was originally turned on to me by Molly. And so I'm going to get Molly to give a little intro as to why she felt it was important for us to have him on the show. And then we will talk to you about why when we originally interviewed him in June, we're only now releasing this episode in season two and how that process went for us. Take it away, Molly. Thanks, Clarissa. Yeah, I, for one, have been been a big fan of Ted Naiman for a while now. I've been watching him kind of evolve his message and, and trying to figure out what this guy's really about, right? Because when we first see him, where we see pictures of him or we see him in video, we often see him in a tank top and he's muscly and he likes to show his pictures, his like before when he was a younger guy versus now. And I wanted to make sure that he wasn't just another, you know, bro science guy. Like I really just wanted to make sure he wasn't going to be another doctor telling us calories in, calories out, that kind of thing. But he was making a lot of noise and, and he was pretty popular on Twitter. And he came out with the book, The PE Diet. And I was really starting to wonder about protein quantities that I was eating myself and whether or not I was getting enough because I was starting to feel like I was always hungry. And that, as you know, as a food addict, like that can be, it can create a lot of fear. Right. So I just watched and watched and watched. He started consulting for diet doctor. I saw more and more interviews with him and I just really liked what he had to say. And I really thought that he had something with the whole protein to energy ratio formula that he really talks about. And so I thought it was really important to have him on, to ask him about protein for clients, for listeners, to just better understand like what other ways of eating there could be out there for, for those listeners, for our clients who don't do well, higher fat keto Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be that's out there. So that was really why I wanted to kind of shine the light on him for you, but then also bring him on to the podcast. Yeah. And side note, he did show up to the interview in a tank top just for all of those people who can't see what we get to see. And he walks the talk, let me, or whatever. (laughs) He was looking like the protein energy diet is working for him. And what we actually loved about the interview was so much came out for me about how to work with clients with volume issues. And, you know, originally I was a little nervous to air this episode because he was talking about, you know, leaning in to over, not over consuming, but consuming more. And that the, that as humans, we are actually wired to consume more at certain times of the day. And instead of working with clients and telling them, you know, we really got to cut out this behavior, maybe we can help them to pick smarter or 
better protein choices and that, you know, once they start this, then they can work on the behaviors after. So something that really, I definitely had one client who was really trying to limit the evening metabolic that she was having. And on her plan was, you know, a quest bar. And he talks about in the episode how, you know, just with the, you know, protein energy, along with the carbs and fat in those, that those become somewhat of a delicious snack and easy to overconsume. And one is not enough. And this was constantly what the individual I was working with was finding. And so for her switching to some of the more volume of the protein dense items that actually are satiety per calorie allowed her to consume more food at less calories, which allowed her to meet her goals of not increasing weight and eat in a way that didn't feel like a bitch. And that is what we really loved about this episode. He definitely talks about, you know, binge eating disorder isn't necessarily a thing we all binge eating, but that he wasn't really saying it's not a diagnosis. He's just trying to normalize it, that we all do it. And that as humans for years, we've been wired to do it this way. And so why can't we lean into that as a way to recover and do things better with less criticism of us being a failure in trying to figure out our relationship with maybe eating some of these foods. Yeah. And my biggest takeaway from all of that was, you know, first and foremost, we didn't ask him on as a food addiction expert. We asked him on as the protein expert and he doesn't treat food addiction. He doesn't even treat binge eating disorder. And and we asked him about that. And he said, listen, I'm all about referring out for therapy. He's his wife is a therapist. He's like, go, you need to pull all the levers is what he said. Right. And so normalizing all of that stuff, going and seeking that individualized help and support around those things. But to understand that the PE diet, it is called is this agnostic way, right? It's, it doesn't get into diet religion. It's an agnostic right. way of really showing up and just saying, listen, I have been really hungry lately. If I go for a higher protein whatever, like the volume of it may actually decrease because I'm getting more satiety per calorie from this food source versus others where we have to eat, meat, 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 right? Like the garbage or the junk food and then everything's on a spectrum and he doesn't label foods good or bad. He's just like, listen, it all falls on a spectrum. Go find your spectrum, you know, and using tools like the scale or whatever, again, you know, you have to take and leave from these episodes, what works for you and what doesn't work for you as a medical doctor in the trenches, scale, weight, works for him as a tool to give feedback, right? It just gives feedback. And right. we do, we have different goals for different reasons. And, and so, yeah, I think that when we can listen to this episode from the perspective of what works for me, what lands for me and what do I need to leave behind? You know, I think that the message from Ted Naiman in this particular interview is actually very helpful. And right. that was part of the nervousness of releasing this for the last six months is that it was probably an interview ahead of its time, but we feel like you, the listener have come through season one with us. We've introduced you to people who we think have some real expertise in very specific areas. And we're just asking that Ted be heard for his expertise in in protein, not necessarily on binge eating disorder or any of that other stuff, but I fully, fully, fully appreciated his willingness to just show such compassion for those of us with volume addiction and binge eating disorder. He never once 
I think that he can come across like as if he's poo-pooing it and he's not, it's the compassion for, he doesn't want people to suffer and he rather show up with a solution instead of focus on the problem. And his right. is this volume thing, you know, and you're going to hear him talk about protein ice cream. You're going to hear him talk about 20 cups of popcorn. Let's just put that out there. Yeah. That is not for you. If you're a food addict and green is a thing that you can't be eating, corn is a grain, you're not going to be listening to that advice to that suggestion. And he would never give that to you. Right. Just giving an example of how he does work with patients who have just strict volume addiction. Right. And maybe he's saying lean into those leaner proteins like skinless poultry, ground beef, tofu, fish, Greek yogurt in the evening where you can have a little bit more quantity of them, but not at the cost to your food sobriety right? That is the key. And that, you know, center your meals around protein, but also you can do that with your metabolics or, you know, in between snacks, if that's what you're going to have. It's really for us, I think we, he just, he's not saying be, you know, eat a certain way. He's seeing focus on the protein. If that's vegan proteins or vegetarian proteins, great. If that's leaner meat proteins, great. But I think he's a very balanced approach. And even though he was saying, you know, he likes that people weigh themselves every day because it kind of gives them an idea of what's going on. He's like, be compassionate with yourself and understand you're going to range within 10 pounds, focus on body composition over that number on the scale. And I think that that was some really important takeaways too from the episode that I loved. Oh yeah. That weight bias thing, right? It was gone. Like he said, I don't want people to weigh less. I want people to weigh better. It's about the muscle because the more muscle we have, the longer in our lifespan we have it, the healthier overall we are, right? Our quality of life is just that much better. So again, there were so many, so many takeaways. And at some point we're going to have to let them listen to this episode. But I think it was just important for us to get to have a conversation ahead of time so that if anybody was nervous, they could hear kind of, you know, this conversation we were having and they can turn it off now if they're worried that this episode this might is trigger them. But I really feel like you all need to listen with educated ears and just take what's true for you. You know, there could be some stuff in here that's really helpful for you, especially if you're somebody who's maybe not eating enough, because we do tend to do that in this, you know, field. You know, I eat only four ounces of protein. I don't eat any more than that. Well, you know, you can probably have a little bit more if you pick some of these leaner proteins and hopefully they will help you make you feel more satiated and still help you meet your goals of reducing weight if that's one of your goals and that's important to you on this journey. Without further ado, Dr. Ted Naiman. All right. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Naiman. We're super excited. So let's just kick it off. Will you tell us about your aha story personally and as a medical professional that something about the way you were taught or the way you thought about medicine and food and and all these things, like something just wasn't right? Gotcha. Okay. Well, yeah. So I was raised Seventh-day Adventist and we had a lot of very specific beliefs about diet and food and basically eating meat was bad and plant-based was the way to go and you never wanted to eat any cholesterol or saturated fat. And pretty much everybody I knew and went to school with ate the same way. And I went to Loma Linda, which is, you know, Adventist medical school and sort of in the blue zones. And it's this plant-based Mecca and everyone was eating the same way. And I kind of looked around and realized that no, none of my peers were really any healthier than just the average 
person. And so I did, I was left with the feeling that diet was actually not that powerful of a driver because here I am with the, you know, the best diet you could possibly have. And I'm not particularly that healthy. No one else is that healthy around me. And then we were also taught in medical school that if you had a chronic disease, it was basically genetic, right? If both your parents are diabetic, you're going to be diabetic, 80% chance. It's just genetics. If both your parents are obese, there's an 80% chance you're going to be obese. Totally genetic. We have to just feel sorry for these people and give them as many drugs as we can because it's just bad genetics. You know, what can you do? And so even at this plant-based Mecca, like diet was kind of underplayed in like, well, yeah, diet's cool and all, but you're really just dealing with genetic issues and, you know, here's the medication to use. So I kind of went in out into the world of practicing medicine with the belief that diet wasn't that big of a driver or a lever. And most of the chronic diseases I was seeing were just genetics and bad luck and here's the drugs and that was that and so the aha moment for me was was really when I was an intern and I was I had a diabetes clinic and this was in South Carolina in the deep south and at the time uh, South Carolina was the number one state in the country for obesity for type 2 diabetes for heart attacks for strokes like it was it was number one for a whole bunch of stuff and we just had these horribly ill people with just horrible, horrible diabetes, and they just kept getting worse, and we were just giving them higher and higher doses of insulin, and they were just getting fatter and sicker and complications and dying, and I was just surrounded by, like, diabetic complications. It was really bad. And one day, this guy came in, and he's he had lost 30 pounds, and his blood sugar was normal, and he just stopped taking all his meds, and he felt awesome. And I was like, oh, wow, how did you, how did you do this? You have to tell me how to do this, because I want to bottle this and sell it to everybody else who's coming in here. And he's like, oh, I just read this Atkins book, you know, Dr. Atkins' New Diet Revolution or whatever. And he had like this, you know, $5 copy of this book. And he's like, I read this and I ate, you know, way less carbs and it was super easy. And I just, I just ate less and I lost weight and I feel great. And that was kind of like this light bulb thing to me because never before had I really seen somebody make some very specific change to their diet and then boom, just completely change their health and rewrite their health. And, you know, that was 20 years ago. And so ever since I've just been researching diet and especially macronutrients and health, and that's kind of where I got to where I'm at. But that was basically the aha moment for me. So can you tell us a little bit about what is the PE diet and what is the evidence that you have like been researching and discovered that, you know, advocates for a higher protein, low carb food plan? Gotcha. Okay. So the PE diet is really just looking at the PE stands for protein to energy or or protein to non-protein energy ratio. So the PE diet is a way of looking at really just the protein percentage of your diet. It's basically amount of protein versus amount of carbs and fats that you're eating. And the PE diet approach uh, borrows really heavily from doctors Raubenheimer and Simpson, these professors in Australia, who've been researching protein leverage in all sorts of animal species for decades. And apparently, humans have a very powerful protein satiety drive, and you will basically eat and eat and eat until you get enough protein, and only then will you stop eating. And it's a very, very powerful force. Uh, Raubenheimer and Simpson demonstrated that increasing the protein percentage of your diet by 1% 
you basically eat 10% less non-protein energy carbs and fats and vice versa. If you drop your protein percentage by 1%, you're going to eat 10% more carbs and fats because you just have to eat more non-protein energy calories to get enough protein to not be hungry. So the PE diet is really leveraging this whole concept, this whole protein to energy mindset and phenomenon. And it really explains a lot of the global obesity epidemic. We've uh, diluted protein with refined carbs and refined fats. Over the past six years of the obesity epidemic, protein percentage in America went from maybe 14% down to 12.5%. And everyone has to eat, you know, 300 more calories a day just to get the same absolute amount of protein, which we've been doing. We've basically eaten the same absolute amount of protein, but the amount of carbs and fats we had to eat to get to that protein went up due to protein dilution. It really explains you know, about half of the obesity epidemic and explains it pretty nicely. So there's tons of research on protein percent of the diet in the medical literature. If you look at any single diet, ever published in the history of medical literature anywhere in the world, and you look at the protein percentage, that's the number one factor. If you're ever comparing two diets ad lib where subjects eat as much as they want, you have to fix protein percent. That's the very first thing you have to do in any diet study. You have to fix the protein percentage because a higher protein percentage will just immediately blow any other diet out of the water. So protein percentage is basically the number one factor when it comes to how many calories um, people eat. Robinheimer and Simpson did this amazing meta-analysis where they looked at 116 studies where humans ate as much food as they wanted, but someone was tracking the macronutrients. And they graphed it all out, and you get this perfect linear graph where the higher the protein percent of your diet, just the less calories you eat automatically. It's extremely linear and it's extremely driven by protein percentage. That's really, really the number one factor. And you can see this going from, you know, down at maybe 10% protein, 5% protein at the low end, all the way up to about 50% protein as one of the highest percentages humans can eat for any length of time. And you just see this completely linear decrease in energy intake. We see this in the real world all around us with bodybuilders and bikini models and Instagram fitness influencers. And if you actually look at their diets, if you calculate out the protein percentage of your average bodybuilder or your um, aesthetic athlete, you just see higher and higher and higher protein percentages as they get leaner and leaner. If you're a bodybuilder in show prep, you're eating 40% protein, maybe 50% protein, maybe in peak week, you're eating 60% protein. And you just basically eat less and less automatically because you have higher and higher satiety per calorie. So protein percentage is probably the single most important metric for anybody's diet. And it really just doesn't get enough airtime, I think, in the diet space, in the obesity space. And that's why I wrote this book. That's why I'm talking so much about it. Yeah. And that brings up two things. You talk a lot about the calorie or satiety, that ratio, like you're looking for that satiety to calorie kind of thing. And so if you would just define for our listeners, what satiety actually means from the way that you look at it. And will you explain how the PE diet is different than pure carnivore? Gotcha. Okay. So satiety is basically just not being hungry. So 
there's sort of a short a short term satiation, which is in, in within a meal where you're like, okay, I'm eating a meal and now I'm done eating. That's satiation. But satiety is a little bit longer term, you know, hours afterwards. So, like, let's say for example, I give you this food that gives you amazing satiety. It's got you know all the protein you need, all the minerals you need. It fills you up. You eat it. You're just super not hungry the whole rest of the day. But it had, you know, one calorie. But then I eat like some giant thing that has billions of calories. It's just like sugar and oil or something, but it has no protein, no minerals, low satiety, very small weight and volume. And so I'm still kind of hungry afterwards, but I already ate my 10,000 calories or something. So that would be like the very, very worst satiety per calorie. So really this success in just eating less kind of comes down to satiety per calorie. There's a lot of factors, but protein percentage is way up at the top. And I think you asked me another question that I'm not answering. What was that? Sorry. How how eating the protein to energy ratio way is different mm-hmm. than just pure carnivore. Got it, got it. Okay, so the, well, there, this completely applies to plant foods all over the place. So like you've got plant foods with crazy high protein to energy ratios, you know, like uh, green vegetables have an amazingly high protein energy ratio. You've got asparagus, which is maybe 45 to 50% protein by calories. Uh, Brussels sprouts are way up there. Spinach is way up there. These are all 40%, 50% protein by calories. You've got soybeans, edamame, uh, you know, 50% protein by calories. You've got tofu that's even higher. You've got plant protein powders that can be 80% protein by calories. And then, of course, in the plant world, you can go all the way down to just like a macadamia nut or something that's like, you know, 5% protein or just basically, you know, some sort of fruit or something that's under 5% protein. So protein to energy ratio is diet religion agnostic. It doesn't matter whether you're looking at paleo foods or some hyper-modern, super-processed Greek yogurt, fermented dairy. You could have like an awesome PE ratio with a hyper-modern, artificially sweetened Greek yogurt product versus just like I go went outside and killed an animal and ate the whole thing, some sort of paleo-style, pure carnivore diet. So like the pea diet is diet religion agnostic. It doesn't matter. Plants versus animals just fades away, and it's a total non-issue. This completely applies to plant foods and animal foods. Like plant versus animal is kind of a false dichotomy almost, in, and it, a lot of people focus way more on that than they should because it kind of doesn't really matter. I could be a pure carnivore and just eat a bunch of lard, and I would basically not lose weight or I might gain weight, or I could be a pure vegan and just eat lots of bananas and coconut, and I'd actually gain a bunch of weight and it wouldn't be that helpful. So, you know, the PE diet is a way of demystifying or de-religiousifying diet. So it's completely agnostic to plant versus the animal, vegan versus carnivore, low carb versus low fat. These all just sort of fade into the background. Yeah, Yeah, I I really appreciate your graphics. Go ahead, Clarissa. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was just going to say that gets us so excited because we live in a very dogmatic world and we work in the field of food addiction. And it's like, you know, can you recover from food addiction if you are a vegan or can you recover from food addiction? Can you, is the only way carnivore? And so I'm wondering in the work that you do, do you run into clients who maybe have a hard time sticking to this way of eating? And do you think like there's some level of hedonic eating and perhaps food addiction? 
addiction is at play? Yeah, absolutely. So like for me, protein dilution explains half of the obesity epidemic, basically a straight 50%, right? We've uh, added all these refined carbs and refined fats to the food environment. All the foods you just that are around you are horribly protein diluted. So you have to eat more calories to get enough protein to not be hungry. And that's protein dilution. And that's driving half of the obesity epidemic. The other half is just the pure hedonic nature of high energy density carbs and fats combined together. This is a, if you take a high energy density carb and high energy density fat, and I'm talking, you know, candy bars and ice cream and pizza and donuts and french fries and potato chips, it's high energy density carb and fat together. This combination is rarely found in nature. You will only find it in a million milk and nuts, which are basically foods designed to make tiny plants and animals big plants and animals really fast, this combination of high energy density carbs and fats together spikes dopamine in your brain. It's super tasty. It's super addictive. It's super hedonic. I mean, I could eat, you know, my fish and salmon and be totally full and have all the protein and weight and volume and fiber and minerals and everything I need, really high satiety of calorie. But you bring me like a cheesecake or a donut or something, I'm still going to eat that too, right? And so there's this hedonic nature to uh, in the book we call it the trifecta. It's high carb, high fat, high energy density all together. It doesn't work with low energy density carbs and fats. So like, you know, a steak and a salad is basically the steak has fat and salad has carbs, but they're low energy density fat and carbs. And you're, you can eat them together. You're not going to have a, this high hedonic thing. It has to be like a donut or something that just has a lot of fat and carb calories you know, refined together in a high amount. And this is not, animals are just wired this way, right? It's not like anybody's fault. This You can take any omnivore mammal and just make them overeat by 30 or 40% of calories automatically by feeding them these foods. So, you know, in, in the medical literature, we have these cafeteria diet studies where you just give uh, lab rats and mice a uh, human junk food. They literally just feed them like Little Debbie's and pepperoni pizza and Snickers bars. And boom, you can just fatten anything. You can do this to bears. You can do this to primates. You can do this to dogs and cats. And any like even halfway omnivore mammal is just going to automatically weigh overeat these foods. And that's just the way we're all wired. It's not even anybody's fault. You have to understand it. You have to be aware of it. And it's not even really, I mean, it is addiction, but that's, it's like you're, everybody's wired for this. So it's inescapable. You have to know that this happens to everyone. So with these individuals that I imagine you see in passing that, you know, have this, you know, compulsion to consume highly addictive processed foods all the time. And do you have to work with them in a different way to get them off those foods? And have you seen them like experience withdrawal? And then also our audience really in the beginning stages of removing these foods deals with hunger and craving. And how do you help support those that you work with? 
Gotcha. Okay. Well, first of all, I like to normalize it because this happens to everybody, right? If there's a box of Krispy Kremes just sitting in my kitchen, I am literally going to eat those. I'm going to eat you know, at least one. I might eat the whole box. If it's there, I'm going to eat it. And this is not some sort of like huge moral failing on my part or whatever. But what I like to do is number one, focus on what you should be eating, what you do get to eat, what you need to eat, what you're supposed to eat. So you're not hungry and you have to do that first, right? Step one is go out and buy all this protein, all this fiber, all this high nutrient density, low energy density food. Just surround yourself with lean meat and fruits and vegetables and fermented low fat and low carb dairy. And you just have, you know, once you've eaten your five eggs, smoked salmon omelet with a side salad and like just like tons of protein and fiber and nutrients and minerals and you're full, you're going to be way less likely to eat the donuts. Or if you do, you might just eat one of them. So so you want to start with what you can eat, what you should eat, what you need to eat. And you want to surround yourself with these foods and have your food environment all set up. It starts with just procuring these foods. You have to go to the store, buy all this stuff, have this food everywhere, cook this food, eat this food, and only then can you walk away from the donuts. Like, I can't just take a client and say, okay, no more, you can't eat donuts. You can't eat donuts, go. Well, that's not gonna work. They're gonna go home and they're gonna be starving. They're 30 seconds later, they're gonna eat the whole freaking box of donuts. But if I'm like, okay, you need to eat four pounds of food today, it's gonna be nine eggs, a pound of smoked salmon, a salad the size of your head, and, you know, 20 cups of Eric popped popcorn. That's your, you have to eat all these foods today to get your, you know, all, what you need. Uh, you eat all that and then you're just super not hungry and you're like, okay, I could probably not eat the donut. So it really starts with what you're supposed to eat first and only secondarily, it's not eating the stuff that you shouldn't eat. And when it comes to not eating that, you basically just try to not have it in your environment because if it's there, you're going to eat it. And that's not necessarily any kind of moral failing. That's just the way humans are wired. So yeah, that, that's my, that's my number one focus. Yeah. And that's amazing. And we work that way a lot too, right? Like the crowding out the stuff mm -hmm. instead of just ripping away somebody's coping skill or emotional management tool or whatever we say, go get these foods, learn how to cook them. We might even help them learn how to cook them, you know, whatever that might be. Because I think too, we find clients that just, they don't like to cook quote unquote, right? Because they're just, they're so used to that packaged mm -hmm. rip, put it in the microwave, pick it up in a drive-through, whatever it might be. And so, so kind of on that same vein, but shifting gears just a little bit in the same vein of, of these clients, you know, do you help them then kind of break up with the scale as well, you know, and what biomarkers then, if you do, do you use to really determine health and wellness in your patients? Well, okay. The scale is a tough one. So now I, I don't want people to weigh less. I want people to weigh better. I'm just looking for recomp. You want to just convert all your fat into muscle and weigh the exact same. Like the pinned tweet on my Twitter is like me looking all fat and skinny fat and horrible and just being more muscular and having the exact same weight at, in both of them. So I'm all about the recomp. And so you just want more muscle and less fat. That's what everyone needs pretty much all the time. Everyone's looking for recomp, more muscle, less fat. You can kind of do that at the same way. However, having said that, I do like tracking stuff. You do want to know where you're at. I actually like daily weights. I know it's controversial. 
But we have research showing that people who, you know, weigh themselves regularly are just more successful because they get this constant feedback. When I have a client who comes in and says, man, I, I haven't weighed myself for a year and I'm a little afraid to weigh myself because it's probably going to be bad. Uh, yeah, it's going to be bad. Like, hello, come on. So I like daily weights with the caveat that everyone just goes up and down this in this huge, you know, maybe 10 pound window of, you know, you drink a gallon of water, boom, you instantly weigh, you know, nine pounds more than you did five minutes ago. So there's this huge shifts of water glycogen, how, how much carbs you've eaten, how much water you drank, how much sodium you consume because then you have to drink water and your weight could go way up. Women are, have this monthly cycle where in the, you know, the second two weeks, progesterone is really high, just tons of salt craving, tons of water retention. Your weight could go up and down, you know, 10 pounds. You could eat way more fiber and the stool content and your colon goes way up by several pounds. I mean, so there's all these caveats and you really can only zoom out and look at weight in like a rolling monthly average and weight loss is super nonlinear and there's all these jaggies up and down. And so you have to really, really take a zoomed out look at it and look at on the scale of, you know, weeks, months, years, it's going to take people, you know, maybe three years to get to their goal weight. So I love daily weights, but I love zooming way out and looking at very, very big trends. And I also like focusing more on body composition than actual weight, more muscle, less fat. But however, I do like it when people track stuff. I'm like, hey, weigh yourself every day, but no, have, have all this knowledge behind it. Don't let it, just don't, you know, oh, I gained three pounds. Okay, I'm just going to eat donuts and give up. And that's it. It's over. I also like waist circumference. I'm a big fan of waist to height ratio, which is basically just your waist circumference divided by your height. It should be 0.5 or lower. This waist circumference is very, very linearly associated with visceral fat and insulin resistance. And so waist circumference is huge. But again, that's something that, you know, if you eat just a bunch of fiber or something, your waist can blow up by like a foot and a half. And we've all been there where you're just bloated as hell. Your waist can go way up. So it has to be first thing in the morning after you've used the bathroom, you know, just like try to get like some idea of where you're at and keep an eye on that. Or you could, you could really just go with, you know, how do your pants fit? How do you look in the mirror? These kinds of things. But I like vaguely keeping track of waist circumference and vaguely keeping track of regular weights. And these are helpful, I think, for people to just keep an eye on. No, and I love that, especially... Oh, go ahead, Molly. I was just going to ask it as a medical doctor, are those biomarkers, are those helpful for you to know? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, we definitely track everybody's weight and this is very helpful. So I just wanted to ask a question about this fear of protein that exists and this overconsumption of protein, because I've definitely read, who knows if it's fake news or whatever, that protein creates this insulin response and we are constantly fed in the media. Insulin is the fat storage hormone. So if I want to keep my insulin lowest, should I be consuming this much protein? Yeah, so so the protein fear is completely ridiculous. So if we do a thought experiment where you're now on a 100% protein diet, like all you can eat is egg whites, whey powder, chicken breast, shrimp, your whole diet is 100% protein. Well, basically, you just physically can't eat enough protein and you can't convert enough of it to energy to not just continually draw down your fat stores. We put you on a 100% protein diet, you would just steadily lose body fat because you're having to burn some of it because you just can't 
convert enough protein to energy to stay alive. And you certainly can't do it enough to create any new fat. Like it's almost impossible to have de novo lipogenesis or fat creation from just protein. It's always from non-protein energy calories. So you basically just get thinner and thinner and thinner and feel horrible and eventually die of energy malnutrition if you were on a 100% protein diet, eating as much as you wanted. So you, you basically physically cannot overeat protein and you physically cannot gain fat on protein and you physically cannot get insulin resistant from it. You'll actually, as you get thinner and thinner, you'll get more and more insulin sensitive and basically starve to death and die. That's what rabbit starvation is. So you can be surrounded with all the ultra lean meat you want, but you're basically going to die of energy malnutrition. Humans can't really eat. Uh, humans can live on about a 50% protein diet by calories. It gets really, really, really hard to do if you're in a state where you're expending a lot of extra energy. Like pregnant women actually cannot live that high at 50%. They have to be lower, maybe 30%, 25%, something like that, because they need more energy calories. If you're doing a bunch of cardio, if you're running marathons or something, you have to be at a lower percent. You can't live at 50%. You'll basically die of energy starvation. So there, there are these limits to protein because your, your body mostly uses it structurally and you just can't get that much energy out of it. And so the, the point I'm making is like, it's just stupidly wrong to think that protein's going to spike your insulin and make you fat or insulin resistant. Like it's, it's so far the actual opposite. That's, that's just the dumbest thing ever. That's like literally a joke. That's completely ridiculous. You know, protein, protein does raise insulin and glucagon together and will do weird things to type one diabetics. Like if you're a type one diabetic and you eat a lot of protein, you will see a hepatic glucose release go up. And so your blood sugar will go up and it's actually not the protein being directly converted into glucose, but it's a stimulating release of glucose from the liver because of glucagon, basically. So yeah, all these fears about protein are ridiculous. It, it doesn't hurt your kidneys, doesn't hurt your liver, doesn't hurt your bones. It's actually good for all three of those. Protein, higher protein percent diets improves kidney strength and function, improves fatty liver, improves bone density, improves insulin sensitivity, makes people thinner. Anything you've heard bad about protein is basically total garbage. Yeah, which is so nice to hear because again, like even it's so interesting, like we're in the field of food addiction and like the least interesting thing about what we do is talking about food, but it always ends up being about the food. And there's so much fear, even in colleagues across the board around protein. So my question is, how do we figure out how much protein we should eat and how do we get enough? Right. So I like a uh, gram per pound of ideal body weight. You basically just look a reference weight for someone your height and gender should be. So, you know, it's not how much you do weigh or how much you want to weigh. It's how much you should weigh or like the average person your height would weigh if they were, you know. So, you know, like I'm a five foot 10 male and uh, I'm supposed, you know, I'm supposed to weigh 160 pounds. It's just the reference height for a uh, 5'10 now. And so I like starting with a one gram per pound of ideal body weight, which for me would be 160 grams. And what you really want to do in order to eat that much protein. So I have a lot of people saying, oh, I can't eat that much protein. But what they're doing is eating proteins 
that have a ton of fat or carbs with them. Like if you try to eat that much protein from eggs, you're going to struggle because eggs are only 30% protein. You're going to have a much easier time with a leaner protein. You get some ultra lean ground beef, get some you know, 90 plus percent lean ground beef, get some skinless poultry, get some fish, anything out of the ocean, fish, seafood, shellfish, get some uh, plant foods that are higher protein, like soybeans or tofu or edamame or something like that. When you get these leaner proteins, it's super easy to get that much protein in. You know, your non-fat Greek yogurt, ridiculously high protein percent. Very, very easy to hit these goals if you're eating leaner proteins. So the, the secret is, A, choose leaner proteins or lower carb proteins or lower carb and fat proteins. B, center every meal and snack around some sort of protein. You're basically eating to get the protein and everything else is just sort of coming along for the ride. And when you do that, it's it's actually trivially easy to hit these goals. It's no big deal. What are your thoughts then on fat? Because, you know, we commonly hear again in this space is like, oh, you should have the grass fed, you know, as fatty meat as possible, because that's going to be really satiating. So I would assume from your hypothesis, this isn't necessarily the truth. Well, (laughs) so, okay. People get confused about satiety, satiating. And satiety per calorie. So like like the most satiating thing for me would be to go to the buffet and just eat everything. I'm going to eat a whole tray of macaroni and cheese. I'm going to eat an entire pizza. I'm going to eat an entire cheesecake. I'm going to eat absolutely everything there. Carbs, fat, whatever. That's going to give me a crap ton of satiety. But so the satiety per calorie is total garbage because I just eat 1 billion, billion calories. I'm literally getting fatter. So I don't care at all about satiety. The most satiety for me would be a whole pizza and then a whole box of donuts. Yeah. I care about satiety per calorie. Now you start looking about satiety per calorie, really, really fatty meat. I'm uh, not, not that great. The satiety per calorie is pretty bad because it's good satiety and a way crap ton of calories. So satiety per calorie would be a leaner piece of meat. In fact, the leaner you go, the higher the satiety per calorie. And the people forget about the per calorie part. You know what I'm saying? They're like, oh, I, you know, fatty meat's the way to go because I get way more satiety from that. Yeah, donuts then are the way to go because I get the most satiety from donuts. So what the hell? So I think that's what's missing there. Of course, eating more fat gives you more satiety. A stick of butter gives you amazing, amazing satiety. That is the most satiating food ever, but it's a trillion calories and the satiety per calorie is total garbage. And that's what I think a lot of people are missing. That's so funny because I remember being a kid, my dad is a rancher and I remember being a kid thinking like, I could totally eat another steak right now, you know, like another T-bone, another porterhouse, another whatever. Like I remember like knowing the leftovers were in the refrigerator and just having eaten this big meal thinking, you know, like you were talking about the ice cream or the cheesecake or whatever. And I'm like, but that was me with the steak. And that makes sense as to why, because it it's that that piece of it too, right? Where it just kind of, that combination can be hedonic even for people. And Mm -hmm. yeah. So, okay. So, I mean, I feel like we're pretty clear what the protein to energy ratio is. We're pretty clear on like best animal-based proteins, plant-based proteins. We know that you're pretty agnostic when it comes to like the diet space, as far as like the protein to energy, you know, ratio kind of deal. So 
we have a lot of clients who not only are volume eaters, but also struggle to sleep at night. And they often can't go to sleep at night until they feel like their stomach is really full or they've had this big meal. And so can we talk about sleep and carbs? And because we have clients and colleagues who fear this, who fear this advice of like eating some carbohydrates, you know, before bed at some point might help sleep. I mean, what do you suggest? How do you help people kind of work that out? Right, right. Well, well, again, I, I do like to normalize some of this stuff because everybody is doing this, right? We're all in the pantry at like friggin' 10 o'clock at night because we just feel like we still have some room in our stomach. Humans are wired to... I almost feel bad telling anyone they have a binge eating disorder because we're wired to do this binging type thing. Humans are really good at storing fat on their bodies, going a really long time without eating, ketosis or whatever. And then when we find some food, just eating a crap ton of it and just stuffing ourselves. Like like this whole binge eating disorder thing, that's probably just like straight up standard homo sapien behavior, right? The only problem is food choice. That's literally the only problem. If you do that binge eating behavior with, you know, the protein fluff ice cream that I make that's like four pounds of food and like 200 calories or the air pop popcorn that I'm eating, you know, 20 cups of at night to get my hundred grams of carbs. And that's like almost no calories at all. If you're doing this binge eating with the right foods, you're actually just, you ripped and jacked. You're like totally successful. So I try to normalize the binging behavior because that's actually the way a lot of people are wired. And there's actually technically nothing wrong with that if you're choosing the right foods, honestly. So first of all, a lot of people sleep better if they have a really full stomach and if they have some carbs. And this is the parasympathetic nervous system. You know, you've got the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic. Sympathetic is fight or flight, adrenaline, epinephrine, you know, all these adrenaline hormones. Parasympathetic is, oh, rest and digest. I just ate my whole box of donuts. Now I'm just like a, just a fat, lazy slug. I'm just going to lay there and go to sleep, right? And I like to intentionally trigger these states. And part of the PE diet, you don't have to do this to be on the PE diet. You can just look at protein energy ratios. But part of it is like a light intermittent fasting, maybe a 16-8 type of thing, a little bit of a reverse caloric taper where you save up a bunch of calories for before you go to bed. You maybe even save up all your carbohydrate for before you go to bed. So something I do is like, uh, you know, I'll eat, uh, do a 16-8, I'll eat lunch and dinner from like 12 to 8 p.m. or something. First meal is higher. It's always high in protein and fiber, but it's higher in fat. So I might eat a an omelet or steak and eggs or something like that. Second meal might be lower in fat and higher in carbs. So the PE ratio is still awesome. It's still centered around a lean protein, you know, maybe a piece of fish, a chicken breast or something, lower fat, but then I'll eat more carbs. So I get this carbohydrate spike, this glycogen in my liver, this sort of parasympathetic state, rest and digest. I'll eat a couple of baked potatoes. I'll eat a few pieces of fruit. I'll eat, I have, you know, like this, puffed wheat cereal I eat that's just like super voluminous and car and but really low carb density. I'll eat popcorn, which is a, a one of the carb sources I like. Uh, mostly fruit tubers, these whole grains or something like that, always with a fairly low energy density. And that way you get to eat a huge weight and volume of food 
and hardly any actual carbs or calories. Like, you know, berries are amazing. Strawberries are amazing. You could eat 12 cups of strawberries. It's four freaking pounds of strawberries. It's only 100 grams of net carbs. And so if I haven't eaten carbs all day long, right before I go to bed, I can eat freaking four pounds of strawberries. Like I physically can't even do that. I literally can't. I will stop eating. I also make this protein ice cream, which I put in the blender, some sort of low calorie milk, like almond, you know, a cup of almond milk or, you know, fair life is fat free or some low calorie milk, a cup or two of frozen berries, strawberries or something. And then a few scoops of protein powder. And I blend the hell out of it till it just gives you this ridiculous volume. So I have this massive blender full of food that's literally just pounds of food and super high protein energy ratio, crazy amounts of satiety per calorie and hardly any carbs and basically hardly any fat. And I'm doing this almost every night. So like I will eat these huge amounts of protein ice cream, protein fluff. You can make super low calorie protein fluff with just like water and ice cubes and protein powder if you want in your blender. And so you make these voluminous things with a little bit of carbohydrate, a little bit of protein, a lot of weight and volume. You just eat the hell out of it. And you're kind of doing this. I mean, some people look down on this because, oh, you're just you're just supporting people's binge disorder, right? They're still binging. They should just eat tiny little meals all day long of just like Triscuits or something. Yeah, I, I disagree. I think this binge type thing is fine. I think some people sleep better with a full stomach. I think some people sleep better when they partitioned all their carbs to the very end of the meal, end of the day. And I say go for it. I think that's completely fine. I think a lot of homo sapiens are wired that way. And it really, 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 really just comes down to food choice. And some people literally don't have the knowledge that, oh, I can make this whole thing, this giant bowl the size of my head of protein ice cream and eat that instead of, you know, my Haagen-Dazs or whatever. And I'll actually lose weight the whole time. And so I, that's what I'm about. It's just educating people of what they can eat and trigger these extremely full volume eating states or a parasympathetic state from eating a ton of volume and having some carbs with it and how you can do that you know, intelligently with this knowledge and lose weight the whole time. So as a physician who is clearly someone who thinks outside of the box, you know, in terms of like food being medicine, do you also work with patients in like helping them build fuller lives? Because it seems in this toxic food world that we do live in that everything in society, work with individuals in like coping skills or other aspects? Well, so I'm not really a mental health professional, right? So I, I, I'm a huge fan of therapy, right? Like everybody should be in therapy. My my wife's a therapist and a coach and she, uh, you know, has a thriving practice doing a coaching and therapy and, and stuff like that. And the, the mental health side of it, I I am actually not that great at it. And so I always refer people out to a really good therapist. I think that's extremely helpful. Highly, highly recommend it. And that's not really my niche. That's not really my expertise. I'm more about like, okay, food choice and that sort of thing. Like, what do you focus on, on what you're actually eating? But I, there's this huge psychological and emotional side to it 
that doesn't get addressed with just food choices. And that's where you really want to work with somebody who has some experience with this sort of thing. So like a therapist, uh, I'm all about the therapy. I mean, like, you know, I, I just can't recommend that strongly enough. And so that's, that's what I'm doing. Do you notice or, or have you observed that the patients that you work with, you know, do patients who do that, that combination, like some sort of therapy coach, whatever, but then also the food choices working with you, you know, addressing whatever medical concerns it is that they've come to you for, you know, that kind of thing. Then with the food choices, therapy, coaching combined, I mean, do they seem to do better? Like, do you see more success in those clients or patients versus others? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Okay. And so what, what you want to do is pull every single lever you've got, right? There are all these levers and you want to pull them all at least a little bit. There's high protein, there's high volume, there's low carb, there's low fat, there's exercise, cardio, resistance, there's therapy, there's building habits, You've there's medication, which I'm absolutely not afraid to use. And I use those too. And you want to like moderately pull every single lever you've got. You want to be firing on all of these cylinders. The, and the people I see who just pull one lever, you know, uh, I, I talk in the book about a unifocal over-reliance where you're, okay, let's say you're just low carb, right? So all I do is I pull the low carb lever as hard as I can. I pull it so hard. Like now I went from 50 grams of carbs a day down to 20. Now it's 10. Now I don't even eat a salad. Like I know, okay, now I'm a carnivore. I pull the lever so hard. It just broke off in my hand and I can't, I can't be low carb harder. I'm done. I'm, you know, I've got, I've got no place to go with that. So you really want to just pull every lever you've got. Therapy is definitely one. Medication might be another. The diet piece, of course, is the, probably the biggest one, which is why I focus on it the most. But yeah, you really want to use all of these together. They're definitely, you have to be doing a little bit of everything. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. We definitely, for the individuals we work with, you know, we want to connect them to supports and community and like better relationships and all of that. And that really is going to build a more balanced recovery for them. So can you tell us what you're working on next and where our listeners can find you? Uh, yeah, well, I'm I'm doing some work with Diet Doctor right now. Those guys are awesome. They have figured out a lot of this stuff. And so I'm just trying to help them uh, with visualizations, right? Like how people can visualize protein percentage and visualize energy density and kind of just glance at food and get all of this knowledge behind it. And I'm just trying to make it easier for people to get this knowledge, you know, like once you know what to eat, it's so much easier. It's like a cheat code to life. So I'm helping Diet Doctor build this out. And that's probably, that's what I'm spending most of my extra time on. And then, of course, just I'm a regular primary care doctor down in the trenches. And where can our listeners find you? Well, you know, I wrote this book called The PE Diet with William Schufeld. And you can you can check out the book at thepediet.com or it's pretty much anywhere books are sold online. I'm on Twitter at Ted Naiman, uh, Instagram at Ted Naiman. And those are probably the best places to find me. And speaking of your work with Diet Doctor, I recently heard your interview with Dr. Cher. And in there, you mentioned that there's just not enough discussion or research in obesity medicine about the food. And I was just wondering, what specifically do you think we need to be talking more or researching more of, you know, talking more about or researching more of to really get a more clear picture? 
Yeah, for me, it would really just be protein percentage. I mean, you know, you go to Obesity Week and they're talking about the latest, you know, GLP-1 receptor agonist, which is cool. I have no problem with that. And all the flavors of bariatric surgery, which is cool. You know, that has a role too. Okay. But, you know, it's like, okay, who's talking about protein percent of the diet? I mean, like, uh, are you aware of the fact that if you got protein to 30% of calories, you'd cure every single type of diabetic on the planet overnight? The whole obesity epidemic would just collapse. Can we talk about how we could work on that or, you know, how we could get a little bit more awareness around this sort of thing? And it's just, it feels like it's lacking. And, and it's right there in the medical literature, like, Every ad lib eating study in, in the world, you know, the most important factor is the protein percent they fixed it at. Uh, how come this isn't like, you know, this should just be household term. This should be common knowledge, but it just does not get enough airtime. I'm not sure why. I really don't know why. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had any thoughts on like why if big food has something to do with this, big pharma, and like, you know, some of the obesity meds that maybe don't want some of this information getting out there. Like, do you have any thoughts about it? Well, it has to be economic. So like, you know, Ravenheimer and Simpson took every food in the grocery store and graphed out the price versus all the macronutrients. And what it ends up being is this price of every food is completely linear with how much protein's in it, period, always. It's just about the protein. Like carbs and fats are so cheap, they're almost free, but the protein's the most expensive. And that's because it's the most expensive to produce and it has a lot more logistical challenges, you know, more refrigeration and more cooking and more, there's all of these. Protein's just the hardest to produce, to come by, to transport, to cook, to store. And the profit margins are always the lowest, right? Like nobody's making billions of dollars selling, you know, properly raised animal products. But man, cereal, you can make the cereal for like five cents. The the box costs more to make than the cereal. It's got a shelf life of a thousand years. I mean, like the profit margin on carbs and fats is huge. And so I think I think you're mostly looking at economic factors, right? Nobody's profiting off of people eating a higher protein percent. Nobody. Who profits off of that? Absolutely nobody ever at all. So like there's just these really negative economic factors. Even people who are producing meat, for example, they make more money when the protein percent goes down and they add more fat or they have fatter cows or whatever. As the fat or the carbs or whatever else is in it goes up, they make more money. So even people who produce protein don't have a financial incentive to worry about protein percentage. So the whole system is driven by economics. Unfortunately, I don't think it's a big, you know, I don't have this big conspiracy theory thing. I think it's just people doing their jobs, making money, doing a really good job. And you just really make the most money off of refined carbs and fats together. And for a bunch of just harmless economic capitalist reasons. And I guess nobody ever, ever makes money off of telling people to eat higher protein percent. Can you talk about protein bars? Because this is something that is easily sold in a wrapper, shiny, very highly addictive. And, you know, we definitely try to encourage clients to refrain from eating these. What are your thoughts about them? Good food, bad food? Yeah, I mean, the problem with the protein bars is the energy density is pretty high. So the satiety per calorie, again, is lower than you'd get from a whole food protein. So like if you eat a chicken breast, 
you're not hungry for the rest of your life. But you eat that uh, protein bar. Yeah, you could eat like six more. It's because there's a little bit of carbon fat together and it's because the energy density is higher. So you're getting a little bit of the trifecta there, the high energy density carbon fat together. And the protein bar has just enough of that to make it more hedonic than like a chicken breast, which is why nobody's just like wrapping a chicken breast and carrying around with them. They're like, man, I can't wait to eat that chicken breast of mine. And so there's definitely... However, I do think they're better than a lot of other choices. If you you snack on nuts, for example, like you're going to eat an extra thousand calories from nuts. You get the same satiety you'd get from like a Quest bar. So I don't like saying there are good or bad foods. I like putting every single food on this giant spectrum of satiety per calorie. So you've got way at the top foods with the very highest satiety per calorie, and it's like white fish and salad, spinach or something. You know what I mean? And then way, 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 way down at the bottom, you've just got pure refined carbs and fats together, like your ice cream and your donut. And everything, there, there's no good or bad foods. They're just foods with higher satiety per calorie and lower satiety per calorie. And so the protein bars are somewhere on there. They're lower than real whole food, but they're higher than like, uh, you know, your honey roasted peanuts or something like that. So I think they have a role. I am not against them, but I just want people to know where they fit on that spectrum. So they're uh, better than some, but they're lower than others. And it's the PE diet is all about figuring out where you're at on the protein energy ratio and just slightly raising it in a sustainable way that you can actually stick with long term. And so maybe you can fit protein bars in there sometime, you know, just not like all your food can be protein bars. Yeah. I personally love your graphics and oftentimes I feel very called out by them because (laughs) on this experiment, like, like you were saying, like figure out where you are and then like, see if you can raise it, whatever. And it's, it's nice to have those visualizations to say like, okay, I know if I have ground turkey and eggs for breakfast, I actually can go many hours before I eat, have to eat again, right before I'm actually physically hungry again. But if I have eggs and mushrooms, it's, fewer hours. Like I can still go a while, but it's definitely fewer hours. And not that my goal is to go as many hours as possible between eating. It's just something that I've noticed that, you know, those different food choices. And it's really nice to have those graphics. Like one kind of looks like a gas gauge and, you know, I mean, you know what they look like, but I guess I'm describing them to the listeners as far as they're just very easy to look at. And I've noticed, I think you're probably behind the the recent ones with diet doctor and the, um, like the plant protein ones. And those I've been sending those to clients saying here, mm-hmm make better choices, you know, realize that if you pick this as your protein, that you may be hungry sooner. And again, we know the people we work with, that's their biggest fear is that they're going to be hungry between these meals. And so I think overall, that has been my biggest, I guess, gratitude in having you say yes to coming on here today, because you are my go-to protein guru person that I send people to and say, you know, Dr. Ted Neiman says, we're going to eat and eat and eat until we hit that protein need that we have. And so here make better choices. And so before we let you go, cause I know you've got to go, you're a busy man. We have a signature question. So it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about modern day, modern day foods, exercise, health, and wellness, what would it be? Oh, wow. It would just be two things. Number one, prioritize protein. And number two, put maximum tension in all your muscles on a regular basis. And that's pretty much it. The whole book boils down to that, really. It's protein and muscular tension. And that's it. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. And my eyes, I've definitely learned a ton about protein today and I'm sure our audience will too. Cool. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.